Hello and welcome to the podcast, Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure. So for me, innovation's all about um, trying something new that creates value, but it doesn't have to be new to the world. It can be just new to you or a new way of using it. Today, I'm talking to Sarah Huntingdon. Sarah is the Head of Innovation in the Operations and Performance Improvement Directorate of the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. She lives in Cricklade near Sirencester and has been building a house with her husband, Mike, or converting an 18th century house or group of houses. We'll have to ask about that in a minute. She loves baking, she's done glass fusing, and she relaxes with yoga. Sarah, it's lovely to see you. Thanks for joining me. Pleasure to be here, Andrew. (laughs) Right, well, let's start with this 18th century house that you and your husband, Mike, are working on. How did that happen? Um, So we've always had new build houses in the past and and, um, really enjoyed doing uh, like the garden project. So starting with a blank sheet of paper and and creating something. And um, we were looking to move nearer to, uh, Mike used to work in in Swindon and and I sort of worked in Caution. So we were looking for somewhere kind of a bit nearer to his work um, and looking kind of for for the forever home and a bit of a project. So um, we came across this, Let's just call it a, um, an 18th century cottage with lots of bits stuck on the on that hadn't really been well thought through with, but it had quite a lot of land with it. Um, and, and for me, the, the selling point was it had an orchard at the bottom of the garden. Um, and I've always I've, I've had an allotment in the past and I've always loved sort of growing fruit and veg. So for me, that was the kind of the deal clincher. Um, Mike was interested because it had loads of barns and outbuildings and things. And he liked building cars and things like that. So. We could see there was a, a lifelong project there to be had. So, um, we, you know, against our better judgment, we kind of bought this project um, and have basically been demolishing the buildings ever since, rebuilding them. Um, and it's, you know, it's a good 10 year project we've got on our hands now. So keeps us busy every weekend. Uh, lots of DIY. Um, lots of bad backs to go with it but um, yeah keep us busy. I love the way you called it a forever project because it does sound like it's going to be like the fourth bridge you know when you feel like you finished it it's time to go back and start again. <laughs> definitely definitely. Um, but it's, it's always something to be done which is good. <laughs> yeah that's good that's, and what, what's this glass fusing what's that all about? Um, I've always been into sort of doing sort of creative handicrafts and those sorts of things and and lots of different sort of uh, hobbies where you make things. And um, there's a lady in the village in Cricklade runs glass fusing courses. And uh, I'd never I'd never done glass fusing, but I always fancied having a go at um, making stained glass windows. I thought, oh, this might be similar. And uh, went on a sort of a three hour course and I just loved it. And it's, it's, it's one of those hobbies that you just get totally absorbed in it and the time passes so quickly. And you can make something that's really stunning um, even if you're not that good at it, it still looks good when you're finished because the process kind of smooths the edges out and, and, and you get a nice, you know, you get to see the results of what you've made. Um, 
and, and I've been on several courses with this lady now I've got another one an all-day one booked in September and you know the first time I went on it I just I came away saying I've got to buy a kiln I want to do this you know um haven't yet bought one because we haven't built the building to put it in but um yeah it's just one of those things that you just get completely lost in so from a mindfulness point of view it's it's just totally absorbing and um you know what you produce looks really good and you get instant feedback you can see what you've produced so yeah, yeah. It's, uh, sounds fantastic <laughs> <laughs> it, it sounds like one of the outbuildings is going to be your studio at some stage for all of these activities, isn't it? Definitely. <laughs> Very good. Well, it's, it, this is all a sort of long way from Huddersfield where, where you grew up. So tell us a little bit about your sort of family life when you were younger living in Huddersfield. Yeah, so we used to live uh, in a little village on the outskirts of Huddersfield called Lindley. Um, my mum and my dad and my sister. Um, my mum used to work in the library in Huddersfield, so books have always kind of been really sort of a key part of our life and, and reading. Um, my dad uh, used to be a uh, director of a sort of an import experts firm, uh, so he used to travel to Manchester quite regularly. Um, but yeah, pretty, pretty sort of, I'd say, normal upbringing. Um, nothing particularly <laughs> exciting about it, you know. Um, very lucky that I had a very stable and happy home life, really. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? And um, at school there, you, you, with your A-levels, you were focusing on your maths, further maths, physics, chemistry and general studies. So you did you did five, five A-levels. How, how do you think your friends would have described you during those sort of A-level years? What would they say you were like? I think I kind of came into my own in, at the A-levels. At school, I was always kind of I was always very good at most subjects and, and I was a bit of a well still am you know overweight as a child top of the class wore glasses had braces so I wasn't really that kind of popular at school um didn't have many friends that I did have a few good friends and I'm still friends with them now but I wasn't really that kind of person that liked school for the the sort of social aspect loved the learning loved what I learned there but um didn't really feel like I fet fitted in hadn't found my crowd um, whereas when I got to college, I, I'd chosen to do kind of, you know, I'd chosen to do certain subjects and the people doing those subjects wanted to do them and they wanted to be there. So you kind of found that sort of the group that you fitted in with. So all the sorts of outsiders that there the were loners at school kind of grouped together. So, yeah, really kind of enjoyed college because got on with people who had similar hobbies, similar interests. Um, yeah. And it was it was very liberating, I think, compared to school. Yeah, yeah. You, you sometimes forget how difficult school can be, you know, uh, primary and secondary, you know, early, early stages. And as you say, when you find your crowd, um, the difference it makes is enormous yep. to you and your self-esteem and how you feel and, 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 and what you can achieve as well. You know, um, well, that's lovely that you did. You, you did find that. Um, and following that, you then went and you followed on the physics sort of side of things and you went to Loughborough University. Tell us why, why Loughborough? Um, I'd always kind of wanted to do physics at university and I, I'd never really thought about jobs as such. It was always, I want to do physics. This is what I want to do. Um, and I suppose the top two universities in the running for me were Birmingham and Loughborough because I just like that campus feel. Um, and there's lots of sort of open spaces at those universities. Um, you know, you're all in one place. Um, and it was a very close call, actually, between the departments. You know, actually, I think 
the Birmingham course was probably better. Um, it was more interesting, but actually I just liked the feel of Loughborough and I can't describe why it just felt right. Um, and it, it had a really good, um, you know, student reputation as well. And it just felt right. That was clearly really important to you. And um, I'm just picturing you there um, being dropped off and I guess going into your halls of residence for the first time on your own. How, how did you feel uh, at, that, at that moment? I loved it. I couldn't. It sounds awful. Um, I just couldn't get wait to get there. Um, you know, I, I, I've always been quite independent anyway. Um, so for me, it was it was, you know, actually, I, I quite relished the fact of living on my own and, and plan my own path. And I think the thing that was most scary was I was in um, I was in self catering halls, but it was shared rooms. So you had like kind of three flats, but you know, two people in each room. And I didn't know the person I was going to be sharing with. And I think that was the, the kind of most scary thing about it. Um, but actually we all got on really well. And, you know, um, it's like anything new, isn't it? Once you sort of fit in. I think the first couple of months you sort of trying to fit, find that group of friends and, and where you fit in. Um, and I've always done a lot of archery as a, a child. So uh, pretty much in Freshers Week, I went and joined the archery club. And, and again, found my kind of crew there, you know, it was people with a similar interest. So straight away, you've got an instant group of friends there that you can you can go out with. And um, I also joined the Rock Music Society. So you've got a similar group of people there. So um, as well as your kind of your housemates and your, your course mates, you've got instant groups of friends that you know are available and nearby on the campus. So that's great. Um, as you went through the programme, were there some things you were finding easier to grasp in terms of the, the lectures and things and others that were more difficult for you? Um, I think, because I did a further maths A level, I think what really hit home early on was the amount of maths involved in a physics degree. Um, and because I'd done further maths, I, I kind of had a bit of a sort of an insight of, of that level of maths. Whereas I think for some on the course, that was a complete culture shock. Um, and, and a lot of people struggled with that um, early on. So I think I did have kind of an advantage going in, um, having done that extra A-level. Um, I was definitely drawn to the more practical subjects in physics. So kind of, a, you know, um, the astronomy side of things, materials, science. Um, I wasn't so interested in the theoretical side of it, you know, sort of the quantum mechanics side, um, because I, I really struggled to see a practical application at that point in time. and. I kind of needed to see how it was useful. Um, so I tended to be more drawn to the things where I could see there was a practical application. Um, and as it happened later on, I mean, I started off doing a straight physics degree, but as we sort of progressed through university, um, I became increasingly aware a lot of the modules that were coming up in future years really, really didn't excite me. And I was, I was kind of trying, trying to pick ones that I thought well what's the least worst option here and I thought well this isn't great is it um you know I should be doing stuff I'm interested in and I'm trying to pick things that like maybe lecturers I get on with that I can you know engage with and they, they get me passionate about a subject and um I think that really hit home when I went on my year out and I came, sort of came back and I was looking at the modules in the final year and I just thought I don't want to do any of these um and luckily at the time, Loughborough was offering a, a sort of a parallel degree called engineering physics. And you could pick modules from the engineering uh, departments rather than the physics department. Um, and in my second year, I'd managed to pick a 
of optional modules that were sort of engineering too. So um, most of my final year was doing modules in, in civil engineering, in materials engineering. Um, uh, my final year project was in physics, but it was materials related. So um, I was quite lucky that I didn't have to kind of stop and start a new degree. I could just convert to a different one. Um, and I, I much more in, I enjoyed that much more because I was engaged in the subject. So then after university, um, you joined the uh, BNFL's graduate scheme. So tell us where where did you go to and, and what experiences? Because I presume in the grad scheme, they, they sort of move you around a little bit within the organisation at the time, did they? Um, so you went in, um, you went through kind of an assessment centre process to get in. And then you didn't kind of know where you were going to be placed at that point. You sort of expressed the preference for sort of a location somewhere in the UK. Um, and at the time, uh, Mike, uh, he was working in Manchester. So I put down kind of sort of Warrington area because that was nearby. Um, but I'd also said, actually, he was looking at where his officers were as well and where he could transfer to. Uh, and so Barclay was on the list. So the old, uh, what was the old CGB labs down at Barclay? Um, so I'd take that and uh, you didn't actually sort of know until you'd been appointed where you were going. Um, so I got sent down to Barclay, um, which is, um, uh, and still friends with many of the people I met on that graduate scheme, actually. Um, so I, I originally got put in, and you didn't know which job you were going to be put in either. You just got put into a, a function. So um, I ended up in reactor analysis, um, which, you know, on the face of it, looking at someone's got a CV of, you know, engineering physics and all that, you know, kind of makes sense. But I absolutely hated computer programming, computer modeling. It was something in my degree I, I really didn't like doing. And uh, there were, it's all about sort of, uh, you know, analyzing the core performance of a reactor and looking at how you know, fault studies and how things affect it. And that requires you to use kind of specialist sun systems and programming. And, and it just turned me off completely. So I think, I think the second day I was in floods of tears um, on my mentor that had been assigned to me, a fabulous guy called Alan Hoaxy, and uh, really took me under his wing. And at the time, the, the graduate programme was very much geared around which chartered institute you were going to get chartered with. And they just assumed I wanted to do Institute of Physics. And uh, having done the final year of my degree on mainly materials, well, actually, I want to do Institute of Materials, not Physics. Um, and the job I was in was very physics focused. So thankfully, sort of discussing it through with Alan, he said, well, actually, because you're trying to do institute materials, we may be able to move you into the jobs that are more sort of materials focused. So I did a brief stint in fault studies, then got moved into doing some stuff around fuel failures um, and then got moved into the materials team. So uh, we were sat, not literally sat on top of the, uh, the shielded area at Barclay, but we had officers um, well, we had a, a, a suite of caves, um, we had an uh, uh, electron microscopy suite, um, and I ended up doing a lot of the project management of sort of the materials testing programs that would come in, because um, we were testing for people like British Energy at the time and for the, for the MOD program. So um, kind of fell into project management through the materials route, really. Um, but again, it was driven by things I found I didn't like rather than things, but I really kind of found a home with the materials team and I got on really well with them. And that was something I really enjoyed. Yes, yes. So there's a couple of things there. One is um, a little bit like your time at university. You, you were recognising what you enjoyed and what motivated you and what you didn't enjoy and what demotivated you. 
and um, being open and honest about that with your mentor. And it's so good to have a mentor, isn't it? Because they're sort of, they're outside your line management chain and you can be a bit more open and honest with them. You found, you found your way into a place that fitted, uh, which was great. But then I'm really interested because you were saying before that you were interested in, in uh, sort of practical applications of things rather than the theoretical side and the sort of hands-on side of things. And of course, material science is very hands-on, isn't it? Uh, but then you were doing the sort of project management aspect. How did you find the project management aspect? Did you enjoy it because of the nature of the projects or the people, or did you find it difficult? I think I'd been a project manager from a very early age without knowing what it was labelled as. So, you know, I always had a project on the go, but I didn't know to call it that. So um, I'd kind of been doing it without knowing it was a, a thing you could do. Um, so... I mean, we all got sent on a, the APM sort of course as part of the graduate scheme. So we kind of did the qualification and the theory of it before we actually did the practical application of it. Um, but I enjoyed, I think I enjoyed the kind of putting together the, the, the thinking behind it and looking at everything that could go wrong and then making sure things that were in place to prevent it going wrong. Um, and that liaison with people, tracking the progress, um, there's nothing better than putting a plan together and then it actually delivering to the plan you've put together. That's quite a, a satisfying feeling. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And I, I think I enjoyed setting things up and seeing them through. Uh, and, and, you know, you weren't doing all the individual bits of work, but having that contact with people, I think I do actually, and it's something I've gravitated more towards as, as my career has gone on, is that project managing through people rather than process. Um, because you have the best process in the world, but if you aren't talking to the people and understanding what's going on, actually your, your schedule goes to rats anyway. So um, I think, yeah, it's uh, I'm definitely more of a people-centric project manager. But yeah, I really enjoyed that. And it's something I've kept going with through my career, really. So you're the human face of project management. <laughs> <laughs> but then you moved uh, into MOD down at Bristol uh, in a um, looking after some of the R&D work there tell us what sort of prompted the move and how you how you cope with the transition so at the time um barclay the future of barclay was being looked at and they were planning to move all the facilities up to um facilities new facilities up at sellerfield um and so we were given the option of obviously moving with the work um but at the time um when my husband worked there wasn't really many opportunities in cumbria so that kind of move was off the cards. And I was looking at a move into decommissioning, which was very early days at those, you know, back in the sort of early 2000s. But um, I'd actually applied for a job in decommissioning and got the job. Um, but we weren't, when we were negotiating, they, they didn't offer me the salary that I'd that been advertised. Um, and, and I'd kind of gone for it because it was a, a promotion and, and I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I think there was something wider going on with the business at the time that you know, I kind of got the job, but they wouldn't give me the, the advertised salary. And I thought, well, that's not on, is it? That's not very fair. Um, so in um, parallel, I'd been also looking at uh, secondment opportunities and there was a secondment to the MOD being offered um, by staying in the R&D kind of side of the business. So I, again, I was looking at that, but I kind of, I was a bit cheap. I said, well, okay, I'll go, but I want the promotion money that I was getting for this other job. Uh, it wasn't necessarily about the promotion, the money. It was, it was about, you know, being recognized that you'd done X numbers of years and, and 
I think that there was an element of it, it needs to be fair and it wasn't. <laughs> um, so so um, that got my hackles up a bit. Um, and, and they were stalling and stalling on this secondment and I couldn't understand why it couldn't get agreed. Uh, and in parallel, the MOD, uh, I think, got also fed up with the delays and, and, and advertised the job externally. And, and so uh, a colleague of mine had, had moved to the MOD, the same team, a few months before. And he said, well, why don't you just apply for it externally? Because um, um, and actually three of us in, from BNFL in the end moved over to the MOD as part of that move. And we all ended up working in the same team. So um, it was it was a change of type of reactor um, and it was a change to a sort of different organisation. Um, but actually I knew people in the team already so that was that made that transition easier uh, and it was a really nice close-knit team actually in New Clipper portion um, so uh, and I got to work really closely with Rolls-Royce and, and it was Circle Assurance at the time which is how we met um, but yeah it was it was good 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 uh, very different to, to BNFL but uh, good and uh, yeah I enjoyed the work they're very interesting but it built on kind of the knowledge of you know, civil reactors, it just moved into a different type of reactor in a different environment. Yes, yes. So so it built on the knowledge that you had, but then you were able to extend it in, in, in different ways. I'm interested in, in what you said there about it was different. Um, and I'm wondering what that difference was. Was it a cultural difference or was it different people or was it a different way of doing things or, or what? Looking back, what do you think the, the biggest difference was? I mean, initially, the MOD had a whole host of different acronyms compared to BNFL, so just trying to understand the language was a major one. Um, it's, you still got, I mean, obviously we're working on a nuclear programme, so you still got that focus on safety and regulatory compliance and, and doing things correctly, because ultimately, you know, safety is the number one driver, and particularly, you know, not only have you got safety of this from a radiation environment you've got people in a effectively a metal tube under the sink so you know it's very real if something goes wrong there um and i think that the military i was working a team that was predominantly civilian in the r d area but we work with an awful lot of uh, military personnel um and just seeing their approach to sort of career development and you know very structured um career paths and, and uh, training routes for them was, was very different. Um, good in a way, because I think it gave them a certain discipline and a focus, but I think it also is quite constraining for some people as well. Mm. Um, but being a civilian in the MOD is good because you get to work with lots of different services and you see the differences between the services and um, you, know, you, get, you kind of get the best of both worlds in a way. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. So I'm just looking at some of the roles that you were doing during that time. And just what I wanted to touch on was um, so, so, you, so you worked on, on that sort of R&D side and then you, you became a, a sort of engagement manager for some of the MOD key suppliers. And you were saying earlier that that was around, you know, developing senior briefings and sitting in on those those sort of meetings, perhaps in, in main office and uh, main building and that sort of thing. How did you find that? Because now this is very different to the sort of project management of some technical materials work. You've moved quite a long way in, in quite a short space of time, I guess. What was it like? So that move was, I'd, I'd actually applied, the lady, was, I used to work with the lady called Nikki in the team who, um, 
who had been on this development program called MIDIT. It was called Means of Identifying and Developing Internal Talent, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, and, and she'd been on that program previously. And she sort of, she saw something in me that said, you'd be really good on that program because it's, it's aimed at people who, who could be deployed in lots of different areas. Um, and so why don't you just apply for it? So you've got nothing to lose. You've got to fill in a form and go for an interview, but apply for this program. So, oh, okay, why not? You know, um, there's some good opportunities there. I'm used to being on a structured development program. So that's kind of carrying on from the graduate program. And they applied and, and got it. And uh, the, the aim of the program was to move you around the business into lots of different roles. Um, generally from, you, you generally stay at least sort of a year in the role rather than sort of fast stream where you were doing more six monthly placements. Um, just to and it was aimed at sort of developing the next level of sort of senior managers who could be deployed across the business. And so, yeah, I went from doing, you know, technical project management and contract management to doing, you know, uh, performance reviews between suppliers and project teams and providing briefings to senior uh, ministers or, or stakeholders meeting with companies. And um, I think the, the story that's, it still scars me to this day. I think the first, first or second week in the job, having never briefed anybody ever, and there's a very set way of doing this in the civil service, how you brief people. Um, my boss had gone on holiday and uh, I think at the time Rolls-Royce went on strike and uh, everyone was trying to understand what the implications were on all the different MOD programmes. And, and we literally got a briefing request, I think, that morning, and it had to be in that evening, and I didn't have a clue what to do. <laughs> and I just went through, like, panic mode, and, and I was so conscious of the fact it had to be right. The, the, the briefings you give to senior officials have to be factually correct and, you know, very concise and targeted. And I'd never done it before, and I just... It, it still puts me off briefing to this day, just for that horror of having to do that. But um, thankfully, there was a colleague in who was helping me out and directing me, and it was good learning but done over 24 hours it was incredibly stressful <laughs> it's a steep and, learning curve yeah it? and, and I've, I've never liked briefing on really tight time scales to, to senior officials ever since just from that trauma really so let's sort of take take you forward forward a little bit because um after a number of roles within the mod you then moved into the uk space agency so tell us about that move so back end of my sort of MOD career I'd, I'd moved over to do sort of IT and, and comms uh, sort of stuff I ended up working on um, the replacement for the uh, military satellite uh, program and so I'd never dealt with space before but I was there looking at how we transition between contracts really um, and also managing the team and the sort of program support office for the, for the project and uh, this job came up at the space agency and, and it was looking at running a program that was all about getting um, government departments to use space data and space services. And, and it was one of those jobs that was, it kind of brought together different aspects of my career. So it was like a bit of business change. It was project management. It was doing you know, stakeholder engagement, um, going out and finding requirements, so a bit of business development, although we didn't call it that, that's kind of what it was. I thought, well, actually, it's very rare you see a job application. I could do that, you know, and I'm, I'm actually quite interested in that. Um, and uh, I previously looked at uh, applying for a job at the satellite applications catalog. So I was just kind of, you get to a certain point in a career where sometimes you've seen the same initiatives going over again and again. And actually, it's the third time I've seen this kind of change, I kind of need to move on. So um, 
And someone at the uh, satellite applications catapult pointed me to this job and said, you'd be, you'd be good at that. So again, somebody pointed me to something to say, you'd be good at that. So it kind of gave me the kick up the backside to apply for it and, and got the job. Um, and uh, I joined the space agency at the time when Tim Peake was about to go to the space station. So you're joining at this kind of, you know, like the most exciting point in the space calendar, of, you know, for a long time. Um, and that was fantastic because I got not only was I involved in the program working with government, but we also got involved in, in outreach. And, you know, we did a lot of stuff with the um, helping out things like the Science Museum for the launch for when Tim Pete went up. Um, and because my job was liaising with government, I ended up in Westminster um, talking all the MPs through it. <laughs> um, ended up in, so more ministerial was, briefings. Uh, yeah, well, thankfully, <laughs> luckily, the lady who was the expert in space exploration was with me. But uh, yeah, I can still remember having to take um, photos of MPs stood next to a Tim Peak cardboard cutout in front of Big Ben. <laughs> so yeah, interesting things to put on your CV. <laughs> <laughs> But that, I mean, that was a great day because we were all wearing kind of, uh, you know, Principia support crew T-shirts. And it's the only time in London that I was I was on the tube going to the Science Museum in between sort of when he lifted off and when he was landing in the space station. And uh, about 10 people stopped me on the tube and asked me if he'd got there OK. And it's the first time in London everyone's ever spoken to me. So it was, um, yeah, it was great. It was a really good vibe that day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds fantastic. And um so you, you were there for a bit and 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 then you and, and it was a lot about innovation wasn't it and that innovation theme has then continued into your current role at the nuclear decommissioning authority so tell t- tell us a little bit about you know how you sort of see innovation i guess you know imagine in the space sector innovation is um I mean, it's all it's all driving in that sort of direction, doing things differently, thinking differently. You've got the disruptors have come into the sector, you know, as as, as we as we hear with Jeff Bezos and and all these sorts of people. Um, so it's all it's all kicking off at the at the moment in space. In in the nuclear area, you kind of feel like it's a bit more structured, stayed. Let's keep the risks low. Let's you know any change is, 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 is a worry, you know? Um, so how, how have you found that sort of transition from a, a space sector that is kind of pioneering new ways of doing things, it seems into back into the nuclear sector where you sort of started your career, where we've got new challenges, but it's quite difficult to drive different ways of doing things through innovation. Yeah, I think, I think, just to give you a bit of background why I moved really was we'd been doing some work in the space agency looking at how do government departments adopt space data and you know there's lots of new stuff in terms of space launch and exploration but actually my job was more about using the data we've already got from space and using that in new ways and creating new applications for that use so we did a lot of work with people like DEFRA and the environment agency looking at how you use satellites to monitor floods and emergency response and things like that and um We'd, we'd historically worked with departments that were kind of already using space data. So the Cabinet Office for Emergency Response, DEFRA for flooding, those sorts of things. And um, we kind of said, well, actually, that's all well and good, but we need to go after new markets in government. So um, because of my nuclear background, I, and I was aware that the new build programme at this time was kind of really the, the, the noise in Whitehall around the new build programme was kind of building. And I could see there was an opportunity there. And, and it was a case, well, 
a lot of these applications that we're working with on DEF, with DEFRA, for example, could be repurposed to look at infrastructure monitoring. And, and this is the time of, you know, HS2 and Crossrail and all these big projects. We say, well, actually, there's a market there in government that we could go after because we're heavily involved in all these infrastructure projects. Um, and it's not like we have to start from scratch. We've got tools and techniques that work here. Let's repurpose them. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm from Yorkshire. I don't like paying for the same thing over and over again. Like, well, actually, if governments pay for this once, we should be reusing this. Um, so we looked at putting together an infrastructure theme um, and we ran a call, sort of a call for engagement, really. So who is interested in working with us on space data um, to do something around infrastructure? And uh, the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority actually came forward and said, um, you know, actually, we'd be interested in, in some that. We've got lots of challenges around, you know, monitoring estates and, um, you know, looking at the use of data. Is there something that we could do in space? And we we're like, actually, yes, you know. So we started putting together a roadmap of how we could use satellite data for, for nuclear purposes, um, not only new build, but, you know, decommissioning too. Um, and it kind of started from there. And I was like, well, actually, it's, it's new to, it's not new to the world. It's not, you know, a, a, an invention. This is existing stuff that's already out there, but people in nuclear don't know about this or they're not using it. Um, so for me, innovation is all about um, trying something new that creates value, but it doesn't have to be new to the world. It can be just new to you or a new way of using it. So um, again, time to move on, brought the nuclear stuff from space back into the, the sort of nuclear decommissioning authority. Um, and I'm really pushing that agenda now in terms of what technologies can we swipe with pride from other sectors, because you know, a lot of, we are quite a risk averse industry, but um, the mission is changing at the moment. We're moving from that operational maintaining power stations and keeping plants going to, you know, remediation cleanup. So the, the mission is changing. The tools and skills we're going to need are gonna be different. Um, so we should be looking to other sectors to say, well, okay, what have you got that we can use and repurpose? If you've paid for the investment in developing this, let's get that value for money from it. Um, but also the stuff that we're doing that we can export to other sectors too. So um, one of the things I'm involved with, um, I've set up a new collaboration with um, the Ministry of Defence, for example, again, pulling back on some old uh, knowledge from a career, that the requirements are very similar. They're dealing with hazardous environments. They're trying to keep people safe. They've got an interest in robotics and AI. Um, so have we. Well, actually, in some areas, we're doing stuff that they don't know about and vice versa. So let's have that conversation and see, actually, if we can pull our resources and get something better out of it together. So a lot of my work's looking at talk, setting up those agreements with other sectors and understanding where we've got joint requirements or, you know, we can exchange good ideas and then seeing what develops from those. Um, and so we're doing some competitions with defence at the moment. Um, we're still working quite closely with Innovate UK um, as the government's innovation agency to get um, more open innovation and, and put out our challenges and put out our, you know, our problems and say, we don't have all the answers to this. Let's, you know, use that hive mind of UK industry and, and wider ideas and say, and academia too, and say, okay, we've got these problems. How could we fix them and not be really specific about the solution? Yes, yes. And that's it's it's really good what you say and really good to hear because often you know uh, 
I observe we work in these silos. I mean, even in nuclear, we work in silos. But with, when you think about these other sectors and actually having these abilities to bridge those silos and sometimes it requires you to learn a different language because you, you might be all talk about the same thing, but using different words or maybe different acronyms or whatever it happens to be. But that bringing together, you know, across different sectors and different areas to share the new ways of doing things, the technologies that have been proven in other sectors. So it's sort of low risk to bring them into, into the nuclear sector is so important. And the other thing for you is, A, it builds on all your experiences on your career so far, but also it plays to your sort of people strength and your enjoyment of people and bringing people together. Yeah, I think, I think there's nothing nicer than when you know you can you've heard something and you connect them up with somebody else and then something comes out of it. You, know, you kind of get that punch in the air moment and go, yes, you know, it's been worth it. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, Sarah, I'm going to take you back perhaps to your school days a little bit and think about if you could offer your younger self a piece of advice. What do you think it would be? I think I think that it's OK not to have your life mapped out in great detail because. Um, so, and that works for some people, but not for everyone. And I think as long as you are open to opportunities and willing to explore it and then see if that's working for you or not, I think I think growing your career organically is OK. Um, someone once told me that, you know, I had to have it figured out what I wanted to do by 30. I still haven't figured it out. Um, seems to be doing OK. So, you know, it was OK. <laughs> um, I think be open to new experiences, but I think also take the time to step back and say, what am I getting from this? Do I enjoy it? And if you're not, pay attention to that. Say, like pay more attention sometimes to your gut and say, am I enjoying this? And if I'm not enjoying it, what aspect is it I'm not enjoying? Um, I think sometimes stepping back and reviewing that is useful. Um, you're so caught up in doing most of the time. I think sometimes you just need to stop and, and reflect a bit. Um, and you get better as that as you get older. Um, I think I don't think I'd change anything in terms of experience. I think it, it makes you who you are. Uh, but it's, um, I think the other advice I give to myself is look after your back. <laughs> <laughs> More Pilates, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> or yoga. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't got your health, everything else falls apart. So look Absolutely. after you. Oh, Sarah, look, it's been great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for your time today. It's quite right. Lovely to talk to you, Andrew. enjoyed this podcast to help others enjoy it too please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to rate and review thank you